بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله والصلاة والسلام على رسول الله وعلى آله وصحبه ومن ولا اللهم صلِّ وعلى سيدنا محمد طب القلوب ودوائها وعافية الأبدان وشفائها ونور الأبصار وضيائها وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم رب شرح لي صدري ويسل لي أمري وحل العقدة من لسان يفقه قولي وجعل اللهم علمنا ما ينفعنا وانفعنا بما علمتنا وزدنا علما اللهم علمنا ما ينفعنا وانفعنا بما علمتنا اللهم علمنا ما ينفعنا وانفعنا بما علمتنا وزدنا علما اللهم علمنا ما ينفعنا وانفعنا بما علمتنا وزدنا علما ولا حول ولا قوة إلا بالله العلي العظيم ولا حول ولا قوة إلا بالله العلي العظيم ولا حول ولا قوة إلا بالله العلي العظيم First of all on the topic of modernity uh, after, of course, thanking my hosts and thanking this masjid for giving me the opportunity to come and speak to you today. Uh, but the topic of modernity has a lot of different histories, and I want to offer you a lens of history that is scripturally based, based on the Quran, and a lens of history based on what we believe exists besides human beings. Namely, Iblis. Human beings, people tend to imagine that people have always just sort of lived by themselves and how did they survive and back in the day people were striving, struggling and living very simple lives, not realizing that from the beginning of time, the human being has never been left alone. نَحْنُ أَوْلِيَاءُكُمْ فِي الْحَيَاةِ الدُّنْيَا Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has always provided human beings with support via malaika. From the beginning of time, we look at, oh, how did people do this back then without technology? How did they do that? How did they live? How were they happy? Human beings have been supported by malaika from the beginning of time. Likewise, Iblis has been involved with his projects from the beginning of time, except that he was stifled. And he would have some success, then he'd be stifled. He'd have some success, then those cities would be destroyed. He would have some success, then a Nabi would be sent. Only in Akhir Zaman has Iblis been given an open path. This is because our Prophet ﷺ, being the greatest of Nabiyyin, also has the greatest tribulations. As Iblis was given an open book, go and take Prophet Ayyub. Do with Prophet Ayyub as you wish. The challenge of Prophet Ayyub ﷺ, a man who was created as a Nabi. A man who was beloved by his people. He had the, the greatest family. He married the prettiest woman in the, in the land. He had the best children. He had the, the best farm. The best income. And Iblis said, of course your abd is going, to be, uh, is going to worship you and love you because you give him so much. As if to say, well now the test is, take it away and let's see what he does. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave Iblis free reign. 
take, do with Ayyub as you wish. Take what you wish. But how are we going to know if he is Shakur? Leave his tongue. So Iblis then took everything away, was given permission by Allah Ta'ala. Make him sick, make him lose his farm, make him lose everything. But his tongue was the scorecard to see whether he's going to be Shakur or not. So Iblis was given a full open card. Likewise, in our era, to prove the strength of the message of Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam, that his ummah and his mahajjah is so, his way is so clear and his deen cannot be penetrated, it is as if Iblis in Akhir al-Zaman was given everything. Go do what you wish. Economics, do what you wish. In military, do what you wish. In sexuality, do what you wish. So the lens that I want to give you to start taking a peek, to, when you analyze things now, that Iblis is extremely intelligent. The lens is that no evil is just created by itself. Every evil is created, brought it forth, ushered in by Iblis to appear as a response or a justice in response to a worse evil, to another evil. So Iblis does not only, he never brings you one evil directly. He may plan to bring you an evil at a level 10. How is he going to introduce you an evil at a level of 10 out of 10? It's not to usher in 10 out of 10. It's to usher in the opposite type of evil at the level of a 7. And when people complain about that and need justice, then he brings you in something that appears to be a correction of this evil. But it's far worse. Let's take the simplest, most basic, shukran, most obvious evil that has come off in the modern world and has had a massive impact on modernity in the realm of justice. Marxism. So for, just to give you the basic fundamentals of it, Marxism comes around as the idea from Karl Marx of rectifying the injustice of the rich over the poor. Those who have the means of creating wealth and those who are just workers. That was the, so in order to usher in Marxism, another thing was ushered in. You can't just look at Marxism itself. Another thing was ushered in. And that was an entire era in which the poor had no means of production and, you, and never inherited either. The rich, the inheritance rules at that time was that all the wealth would go to the first son. So what happens to such a family? That family gets richer and richer and richer. In contrast, if your father passed away with a million dollars, a million pounds, that million pounds, one-eighth is going to your, your mom. You may end up with... His mother may inherit, if she's alive, one-sixth, another one-sixth to the dad. Then, what's remaining? Take it out of 48. Whatever is remaining is divided up between the kids. If he has five kids, all boys, it's divided into, the remainder is divided by five. 
you're going to all end up with a decent check, but you're not going to, the wealth is not going to continue. If you have a hundred million pounds and the, the man died in the old system of Europe, all that wealth went to the firstborn son. So the wealthy got wealthier and wealthier and wealthier and led to a great oppression of the rich to the poor. So when you see the backdrop, the origin story of something, someone like Karl Marx, you say to yourself, well, he had a point. It was so bad, he had a point. So Iblis, always look at every evil. Iblis brings it to appear as if it was a cure to another evil. And, and people say, everyone with a fair mind would say, well, he had a point. Upend this entire system. The whole system has to be upended. So Iblis always comes to you with two evils. One, the first one he brings to you is not his goal. Then he, what appears to be the cure to that. So a great disparaging in wealth and then Marxism comes in to seem like in the name of justice, economic justice comes in. Let's take a look at history. History is extremely important. Every time, you are, every time someone tells you your history, they're telling you what you should believe about yourself and that impacts what you're gonna believe going forward. When it comes to history, the Christians had, have told lie after lie after lie to their people, the Catholics. This is in the Renaissance. This is standard history in any history book. The amount of lies that have been told by the Catholic Church to their people have rendered the Renaissance historians to realize religious authorities tell lies. So therefore, the origin of their history is the concept and idea that you're always being lied to by your religious authority. And that is at the heart of the historical method. The heart of it. Your authorities are always lying to you. That's their origin. Our origin is nothing like that. In Islam, we have nothing like this. We have nothing to make anyone suspect the tabi'een and the tabi'at tabi'een were lying to us. Firstly, they couldn't. Everything was public. They were not an organization. Everything was widespread. So when Iblis wants to tear down religion, what is the best way to do it? Create a false one. Establish a Catholic religion in Europe that is so oppressive to its people that the, these Renaissance historians are going to come in and appear to be setting us free from this history. Setting us free from the Catholic Church and tearing it down. Let's look at sexuality. What is preferable to Iblis? Extremely modest or extremely lewd? We know for sure, obviously, it's going to be this extreme lewdness. The extreme lewdness that America has unleashed on the world, like a sewer that's erupted. Where did it come from? Where did this looseness of the, uh, in, the, in the American culture come from? It came from an extreme 
an extreme of shame about sexuality that emerged out of the British Empire. If you look at Victorian history, any talk of sexuality, any mention of it, was lewd, what was considered was unacceptable. So much so, if you read Victorian commentary about Muslims, what do they say about Muslims? They say they are sexually out, they're, they're out of control. They're out of control sexually. They look down upon Muslims as if Muslims are animals in the way that they openly and freely dis discuss mention matters of sex. Uh, sorry for their kids here. But in our books of fiqh, in our poetry, in everything, the beautiful women mentioned, in our books of fiqh, everything's mentioned. So how do you get people to one evil? It's to swing the pendulum to the opposite side. Every time you see something you don't like in the world today, and you say, this is the work of Iblis, trace it back. It always brings you something that seems to be that this, this thing was a cure to another thing. And his medicines are always far worse than his diseases. So in the realm of history, in the realm of economics, in the realm of... Marxism has done so much evil in Eastern Asia, in the Muslim countries there, and in general. And the concept, the concept, the general framework of Marxism trickles down. It's always those who are in authority must be bad. If you have power, you must be bad. If you, are in, if you have any control over things, there must be inherently an evil there. You are oppressive by nature. Well, we can't have that in society. We have to have order. Our families have order. Our masajid have to have order. Well, the, the, the mentality, that mentality is always that if you're in charge of something, if there's a hierarchy, there must be evil. That's originated, that the seeds of that is through Marx. Because of the great oppression that the rich did to the poor. How about in matters of gender? In the realm of gender, today it's out of control. Well, go back a hundred years to England and see the laws established for women, even by our Sharia, were oppressive. They don't inherit, they can't own property. That was there, this was in British law. So when you see the early wave of feminists, when you read what they're complaining about, you have to say, well, even by Islamic standards, this is wrong. You root for them. You would root for the first group of feminists. And you say, look, by Sharia, this stuff is all haram. They have no rights. And then, so you see where he's going with it. Then you have the second and the third. And there's never just justice. All justice movements have no end. Like, so where is, where is the justice? When, is, when are we fair? When are things fair? Because there's no scripture, there's no book, there's no qawlun fast. Every single justice movement has no end. It just keeps going. It just keeps going. So, every time that you see something that is evil in the world, Iblis has introduced it via the opposite. Today we may see another situation like this where a certain evil is unleashed in the world that would seem to require a global unification of nations. 
it will seem to require that this, this global unification of nations on certain matters seems to be the cure. Guarantee it's going to be the oppression. It's the new oppression. These are the tr when we look at modernity, look at the tricks of Iblis. Human beings are not that smart to do this conspiracy. On the realm of psychology, Sigmund Freud is an imam of kufr. On the realm of economics, Marx and Smith, imams of kufr. In the realm of, in the realms of politics, when you see what the French kings were doing, so dismantle any royal authority, dismantle any respected and honored authority in the realm of politics. Well, when you look at what the French were doing, they were oppressors. So it, you would also root for the French Revolution. You would support the Americans over the British in the colonies. You would look and say, this is oppression. So again is the theme that when Iblis wants to bring you an evil, he brings it through an oppression and it looks like a justice. And that's the lens by which you should start foreseeing certain events in the future. Not like foreseeing Mukashifa, but for, forecasting. Next time there's a, 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 a great need in society, look at who's creating this need, because that need that you say, oh, that's the solution. This is the solution to our problem, is likely to be a greater disease. So what I'm trying to give you is a methodology, a minhaj of analysis of events. So when COVID came around, clearly we all say, hey, we all need a cure. We all need a vaccine. We all need a solution to this. The world can't stop. Well, one of the solutions to this, one of the problems with the solution is that human beings became so conformist. Millions upon millions of people became so obedient, suddenly. And you're like, thank God, everyone's taking the vaccine, we can go back to work, we can go back to life. So it looked like, from the outset, a good thing. But when you zoom out of it, you see really, that what appeared to be a good thing, is now people have become absolutely afraid and conformists from this. So when Iblis wants to initiate a complete global government, he's not going to just come down with, hey, I'm bringing a global government. They're going to come down with a crisis. And everyone by themselves, Badihatan, will say, global government's the solution. When currencies collapse, when currencies collapse, everyone sees the problem. Badihatan, everyone will say, we need one non-national online currency. When you start seeing this, you've got to be able to read the play. It's called reading the play. When everyone in the world is saying, this is the solution we need, we need a solution to this quick, that solution's probably going to be a worse oppression. This is, they also call these false flags. A false flag is an emergency that's created. A problem that's created that everyone would naturally say, well, the solution is this. And everyone would want the solution. But the solution is the original plan. In the United States, people gave up a lot of their freedoms. They gave up a lot of their freedoms. When? After 9-11. Well, if terrorists can get into our country that quickly and tear down buildings, 
We need a massive infrastructure of security. So now willingly people give up their freedoms. So more important to me than speaking about, and I don't know if we're going to have a Q&A session, are we? We should have a Q&A. It'd be good to have a Q&A session because this is, we're just giving the method. Sheikh Asrar will give his, and then we'll get more when the, from the feedback of the people of Jordan. Is to keep in mind this false flag methodology of Iblis. And realize, when people say, oh, this is a conspiracy and this is crazy. Yeah, it's not the human beings. Most humans are not that smart. And if people informed you about the Baltini element of Satanists, you wouldn't even believe it in the first place. I'm sure Sheikh Asrar has, has some knowledge of these things. But if you were to be informed of some of the stories we can tell you, not facts, but transmissions about the nature of the awliya al-shaytan, you wouldn't believe it in the first place. That's how insane some of these stories are about truly who is pulling the strings of the humans. They're highly connected to shaitan. But summary of what my message is, is the methodology. Is that Iblis never comes with one evil. He comes to you with an evil. The solution to that evil is his actual. And why is it that the case? Because humans ask for it. When a bad thing happens, we're not happy. But when we ask for a solution, we absorb it to ourselves. Right? We ask for it. We want it as a, as a human population on the earth. We want nice things. We want newer things. We want to be more connected to each other. We want these things. When you ask for it, so he makes you ask for it. He brings you in a situation and he makes you ask for it. And once we as people, as a population, ask for that evil, it settles within us. And now we're stuck with it. We're now stuck. Let me tell you a story about Egypt, and this is uh, very politically in incorrect for Egyptians. But I'll give you an example of what happened with Mursi when he was president. The military would go out, play with the electricity. You wouldn't have electricity for a couple hours. Maybe what prices would go up. They, they hack up and ruin everything for him. Until the people themselves call for change. But once the change comes, now you're stuck with it. You ask for it. You wanted it, you asked for it. This is the nature of how modernity has always been working. It, Iblis brings you an emergency. You ask for a solution, naturally. That solution was his original plan. You fell straight for it. You fell for it. SubhanAllah. Women get mistreated all the time. But the response is end the hierarchy. Wait a second, no, no one's in charge anymore? End it all. Any hierarchy, any authority is evil. That becomes the solution. That's worse than the world that we were in before. So that's the general motif or methodology or usul by which Iblis is bringing about ultimately what it is Allah's will for him to bring about, for a wisdom that Allah has. And let me close on an optimistic point. Because of the greatness 
of the Prophet it must be displayed, demonstrated. We know of the Prophet's greatness, but the Prophet's greatness was not the greatness in the splendor of his ummah only. It's the greatness of what he can bear. Allah is attribute of quwa and matana. What's the difference between qawi and mateen? Qawi, strong in defa, in pushing. Mateen, strong in receiving blows. That's the definition. So mateen, when I take a sword, the muhannad sword used to be metal, gold, metal, gold, metal. The metal is what strikes, but the gold is what receives the blow. It receives the punch. Matana. So the deen of Allah is mateen. The deen of Islam is mateen. The greatness of Islam will be shown not by what it did in the first thousand years, but what it absorbed in the second five hundred years. Think about this. Everyone envied Sayyidah Aisha, correct? All the people looked at Aisha, and her own mother said, there is never a beautiful young lady whose husband loves her, except that people envy her. This is Sahih Muslim. Good. Did any woman in the time of the Prophet from Ummahat al-Mu'mineen or any other woman face a tribulation worse than Sayyidah Aisha's? That she was accused at a young age and nobody came to support her. No one was out there lobbying for her. This was by Allah's plan to show the people, I chose Aisha. If there is something in your heart towards Aisha, we'll eliminate it right now. Watch what she is going to bear. She is going to bear a month of abuse that no one of you could have bared. When Allah chose Sayyidah Maryam, it's not sufficient for the common human being, the nature of our nafs, to accept the divine declaration. Allah declared Maryam السلام, as the greatest of the women. Right. Some say in, her, in that time, some say ever. But that's not enough. Human being will still have something in their heart. Why her? Alright, watch. She will bear such a calamity that no other woman could possibly bear. And she bared that calamity. That's why a man came to a, a scholar in Egypt, was at a conference in Europe, and said, see, this is why Jesus and our priests never marry. Because of exactly what happened to Aisha, and what does that do to the reputation of the Prophet? Aisha is accused. How would Aisha show her face in the city when she's accused? And the Egyptian scholar, subhanAllah, these ulama were something else. He said, I'm surprised you of all people would ask that question. She showed her face the same way Mary showed her face when Mary was accused. Your own mother of God, as you call her, had the same fitna. Why are you attacking Aisha when the so-called mother of God, not only she had that same fitna that you call her mother of God as Catholics, she was pregnant. Said Aisha never showed any sign of pregnancy. So it was worse. But to show you, the Prophet ﷺ and the Ummah of Islam will bear every possible fitna than any Prophet before him bared. Ayyub ﷺ, Shaitan was given permission to attack Ayyub. Shaitan is now given permission to attack the entire Ummah. Lut ﷺ had his fitna with Qawm Lut, we have it. Ten times worse. 
The Yahud, at the time of Sayyidina Isa bin Maryam, the Bani Israel had Munafiq scholars. We have plenty of those. Previous religions had pagans attacking them. We have that fitna in now Al-Hind. The pagans are on the comeback and on the rise in Bilad Al-Hind. Whatsoever fitna you can imagine ever happened to any Nabi, magnify it by 10, you can throw it in the basket of the Ummah of Muhammad That is so that comes on Yawm Al-Qiyamah, everyone will have to testify. No Ummah has bared more abuse than this Ummah. And they survived it in the absence of their Prophet That's how clear and powerful the teaching of their Prophet was. SubhanAllah That's how clear and powerful it was. I left you on such a clear path of what's right and what's wrong that even the nighttime, in the dark, cloudy night, it, the, the truth is as obvious as the bright, sunny day. That's what that hadith means. The dark and cloudy time when nobody knows where to go, the path of Islam is as clear as if it was a bright and sunny day. No one goes out either, you can read that hadith as no one goes off this path except he gets destroyed or no one goes off his path except he wants to be destroyed. So, we have we are now have an opportunity. We are in a wonderful situation. Wonderful situation, not from the Zahir, but from the Batan. We have the opportunity now to see the prophecies of Sayyid al Kaunain happening before our very eyes. And I close with something I always tell the youth. I said, look, we are 14, almost going on to 1500 years from the time of the Prophet. But the Prophet gave us alamat signs of the end of time. Did not the Prophet say, there will come a time in which your sandal strap will speak to you of what is happening in your home. And your whip will speak to you what is happening to your home, in your home. The sandal strap and the whip is a kinaya or a symbol for everyday things. Routine things. Today, routinely, devices are informing us of what's happening in our home. I know what's happening in my home by looking at little devices that I carry on my watch, on my phone, and I talk to them. I say, Siri, take me, get me to New Brunswick. Siri, find me the weather tomorrow. Siri, send a message to my son telling him this, this, and this. We're talking. There's another hadith that says animals will communicate with humans at the end of time. And I recently read a study in which chips were implanted in the brains where, of animals where the chip is implanted in an area that is known for hunger. So when that part of the brain lights up, it, it pings to the software that the animal's hungry. They have working on a way to communicate with animals by mapping the brain of an animal, putting nodes and chips, and then those, and then creating a language by which the animal, simply by thinking about a matter, you will know what the animal's thinking. It's a communication. 
So we are in a situation that we are lucky. We get to see a lot of alamat al-sa'ah. So we did not see the Prophet, but we saw his prophecies. Alayhi salatu wassalam. We'll leave you with that and turn it to Shaykh Asrar. Jazakumullah wa khayna. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Alhamdulillahirrahmanirrahim. والصلاة والسلام على أشرف الأنبياء سيدنا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين اللهم صل وسلم وبارك على سيدنا محمد طب القلوب ودوائها ونور الأبصار وضياءها وعافية الأبدان وشفائها وصلى الله وسلم وبارك على سيدنا محمد كلما ذكرك الذاكرون وغفل عن ذكرك الغافلون Today's subject on modernity atheism and artificial intelligence with regard to modernity I would say modernity is a natural evolution of humans having the mind to tool make so from primitive tool making we've had an extension of primitive tool making to atomic energy this natural process has led man instead of utilizing technology as a servant for humanity instead worshipping technology itself and the result of that is also the super states that we have today so the the world system of governance today is also an evolution from primitive agricultural societies that have developed into industrial societies so in our western europe We've had, for instance, manorial setups, peasants working on the fields, but then those landlords became extremely rich. And then the navigations across the sea, across the Atlantic, into different lands, and the pillaging of those lands led to what? Led to resources, different natural minerals which were taken. But additionally, when people become rich, they become indulgent. So, for instance, when the first wave of immigrants arrived to the UK from our forefathers, you would realize that they were not as indulgent in luxuries. But as soon as we, the second, third and fourth generation, have some form of pr prosperity, in comparison, we become indulgent. Becoming indulgent means you have certain needs and you need to fulfill those needs. How do you go about fulfilling those needs? Through trade. So people increase, increase their trade when they become rich. So the natural cycle or the evolution was what? From agricultural societies to trading societies. And then you had certain traders attempting to limit trading. Because when you have competition in trade, you need to control the markets. Otherwise, other people take a piece of the cake other people are making money so the traders what they did is they attempted to limit trade so this is the growth of what we know today as capitalism now Karl Marx was against capitalism and wrote in Britain against capitalism when he wrote against capitalism in the 1850s he himself had never set his foot in a factory but the time he lived in was the time of industrial capitalism and this was exploitation of even the white pe people who were the majority of the people in this country at the time 
because many times we point out with regard to slavery and how Africans were enslaved and how indigenous peoples of various regions, including North America, they were killed and their lands were pillaged. But the white working class of this country were also people who were victims of industrial capitalism. For instance, the matchstick girls in London, they would make matches from sulfur to the point that their mouths would, the, acid, the sulfur would affect their mouths to the point that their, their skin would begin to dissolve and they would be look deformed. The working classes of this country were not given social benefits up until the 1940 uh, war, the Second World War. They had post-World War II or the Great European War. They refer to it as the World War, but in fact it was the Great European War in, in which they dragged in everyone else. But post-World War II, social benefits were given to the masses. Why? In order that they do not carry out any insurrection. How does this make any sense? Today, for instance, there is a war in Ukraine and everyone here has a high gas bill. Everyone here has a high electric bill. Yet there is no mass revolution. Why is there no mass revolution? because Richie Sunak's government will give in different benefits for the people who are suffering. Of course, this is only a fraction of what the capitalists are actually attaining from the wealth of humanity, from the natural resources. So this progression of what we know uh, of civilization and technology is what we refer to as modernity. And it led to many good things also, like for instance, <coughs> hospitals, Today, we have antiseptics, antiviral uh, medicines. These are the benefits of modernity. But the harms of modernity were some of those harms which I have mentioned, which were the worship of technology. For instance, the nuclear weapons that people worship today. To the point that many Muslims are brainwashed into thinking that Pakistan attaining nuclear weapons, even though it was with the help of the CIA and the Pentagon, which helped both Pakistan and India to attain nuclear warheads. But many Muslims thought this was a good thing. But what would be the fatwa with regard to nuclear weapons? And this is where we enter with regard to the clash of modernity with Islam. That some people perceive a clash of Islam and modernity. For instance, in Egypt or Pakistan, both countries having some similarities in terms of high populations, uh, the, the Egypt arguably has the only Arab army that can potentially fight, as was pr demonstrated by Gamal Abdul Nasser, and Pakistan has an army which can potentially fight. But both armies, of course, in the hands of the capitalists. But <clears throat> these countries have a secular elite. A secular elite. Why do they have? A secular elite, of course, many of them are educated in the West. Many of them are Oxford graduates, Cambridge graduates, Harvard graduates, and they bring the same mindset back to their native countries. The development of technology entered these type of countries without the natural process that was needed to have that technology in the first place. For instance, you go to Dubai today, you observe all these tall constructions that they build, which is a fulfillment of Ashratu Sa'a, Antara al Hufata, Al Urata, Ri'a Asha'iya Tata, Waluna Fil Bunyan, that the Bedouins will be competing in constructing tall buildings. 
Do they have the technology to construct those buildings or, or are those technologies taken from the Western world and then even the architects are from the Western world? That would mean there is no real development in Dubai. Du Dubai, in fact, is underdeveloped. It's a facade. How is it underdeveloped? The tallest building in the world today does not even have a sewage system. Every day, hundreds of Bengalis and Indians and Pakistanis arrive who are slaves of the system, and they take the excrement in trucks away from the tallest building in the world. A real Bedouin constructed that building, that you construct a building and you do not even have a sewage system for that building. It's like having someone from our region of Mirpur, a man who works in the field, and you have him construct a tall building. And people believe, young people, when they go to holiday to Dubai, they think they are going to an advanced country. In reality, the development is within the technologies and the architects who carried out the construction, even though they carried out a faulty construction, it was the task of the Bedouin to point it out that the building needs a switch system. But those architects and that, those construction uh, materials that were utilized in the machinery is the progress of modernity. So real modernity is tool making, but how does modernity clash with Islam? That in Islam, we do not worship the tool. We do not worship the technology. And in Islam, we, give, we have an ethical and moral guideline, a blueprint, which is from Al-Quranul Kareem and the Sunnah of the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam to guide people through modernity. So the, what would be the correct fatwa with regard to nuclear weapons, for instance? Before delving into that, there is a secular elite which I've mentioned that believe that Islam clashes with modernity in the sense that Islam leads to underdevelopment and is totally authoritarian. But in reality, and that led to the reformist movement in Egypt, led by Muhammad Abdu and others, but also in the Indian subcontinent, it was led by Sir Sayyid. These reformist movements they assaulted al-madhahib al-arba'ah, the four schools of thought. Today, many of the problems we face is because people have what? They have abandoned the four schools, al-madhahib al-arba'ah. But these four schools of thought, how developed were they? Over a period of 1,300 years, <clears throat> you had the greatest minds applying themselves on every modern issue of their time. So from the time of, I will use as a sample, the school of Imam Muhammad bin Idris al-Shafi'i rahimahullah ta'ala, who passed away in the year 204 Hijri, born in the year 150 Hijri. From his birth, he writes after post studying with Imam Malik rahimahullah, and great ulama, including Imam Abu Yusuf, the student of Imam Abu Hanifa, he compiles Kitab al-Umm, which is deemed as his Al-Madhab Al-Qadim. He writes it in Iraq. And he also writes the first rendition uh, or the first edition of Al-Risala. And then he moves to Egypt where he is buried. And in the last few years of his life, he changes some of his positions. Why does he change them? Because of what he observes in Egypt. The fatwa changes according to the circumstances. This demonstrates that fiqh is not outdated because you can move from place to place, time can go on, and the fiqh 
will adapt itself accordingly. Or adapt, a better wording is adapt the times to the fiqh. So then Imam Muhammad bin Idris, he writes Kitab al-Um. Now in Kitab al-Um, he does tafri' What is tafri' He writes all the subsidiary rulings from, from his ijtihad. He was the, one of the greatest minds ever. Uh, which today the people who call for ijtihad, they cannot do that tafri' like the way Imam Shafi'i did in the Kitab al-Um. Then, after him, you have the people of the school in every century, like Al-Buwaiti and others, so many of them. Uh, what happens? They develop the fiqh. What does development mean? That they look at every given issue in every age to the point that you have great minds like Imam Yahya bin Sharaf al-Nawawi, rahimahullah ta'ala, writing al-Majmu' Sharh al-Muhadhab, and huge encyclopedia, so huge that it will take a person years to read, but he writes it and passes away around the age of 42. Not only that book, he writes dozens of books. And today we have people who claim that they can carry out ijtihad and they undermine the four schools. This development of the fiqh was so advanced that modern issues can be extracted from old books. Like what, for instance, and I said I will use the Shafi'i school as a prototype, they give a fatwa in the Shafi'i school. And you could do this with every school. They mention Al-Imam Al-Ramli, who is the fatwa in the Shafi'i school is taken from him, father and son. He mentions that if a wali is flying over Arafat, the land of Arafat, is his waqoof in Arafat, he's standing in Arafat valid or not? And he gives the fatwa, it's not valid. Now imagine reading this fatwa, irrelevant to the fact with regard to a wali flying, what will you extract? Today you have Saudi princes, what do they do? I went to Al-Haram al-Sharif, Makkah al-Mukarramah, may Allah preserve it, and I saw a helicopter around Al-Ka'bat al-Musharrafah, flying around. And I thought to myself, why is there a helicopter above Al-Masjid al-Haram? The locals informed me that's a prince doing his Umrah, he's doing a tawaf. So you extract, you look at the old book, these books that they say, these outdated books, you look at the book and you extract the mas'ala that is the, the standing in the wuquf in Arafat valid or not from an old fiqh book. Never undermine the four schools. Similarly, they have a discussion. They say in the Shafi'i school this is, it would be wonderful if a person just presented from all the schools. But this is just why I presented Shafi'i, because we have a Maliki here, we have a Hanafi here. I wanted to give a third school. We, we, we will definitely have Shafi'is in the audience. But a woman, it states, a woman, her fetus comes out of her stomach, or uh, it mentions the, uh, the beginning stage, the mudra of the fetus, the, the, in the beginning stages, the embryo comes out. Another woman takes the embryo, she places it in herself, and the embryo grows in a womb. What's the legal ruling? Is the child, does the child belong to the first woman or to the second woman? This is in, in a so-called outdated fiqh book. They give the fatwa, they say the child is from the first woman. What will you extract from that? Today people ask regarding, what do they ask? Sur surrogate mothers, what is the ruling? So you know the ruling now from an old Shafi'i book. Like this, you can extract from all four schools. The point being that Islam has answers to all modernity. And all technology that we have 
and this development of technology, we have the fatwa and the correct fatwas and the fatwa to nuclear weapons is that it is impermissible. And I'm sorry to the Pakistani nationalists. Why? Because if you place a bomb in India, if India bombed Pakistan, which inshallah will never happen, but if they did, the nuclear after effects will enter into where? Into India. It harms India to bomb Pakistan. It's, it's no way, in no way can you say it's a deterrent. It does not deter anything. Similarly, the Pakistani army, if they ever take action on Kashmir, ex uh, apart from the speech that they do, that if they decided to attack India with a nuclear weapon, which would be disastrous and stupidity, the after effects would enter Pakistan. This is why many nationalists today have lost uh, their hope because of what is happening in Pakistan. But if I had, I had said this many years ago, people would be against me. But currently, the, the blinkers on people's eyes are open today. That this nation-state model that we have is a development of a post-industrial age. The, the development after the kingdoms we had in Europe, the development was nation-state. The nation-state model does not apply to the Muslim world. The only thing that can function, the, the only organism that can function in the Muslim world is the Khilafah. The return of the Khilafah and the re-establishment of the Khilafah, which is also a natural development which will occur amongst the Muslims when they have an intellectual intifada. When, they, when their minds wake up. So that is with regard to modernity. As for atheism, which is one of the results of engrossing ourselves in materialism to the point that people believe that material gain is the sole purpose of our lives, then let me tell you that in our inner city areas here in Birmingham, which is was formerly an industrial city. Many of us, our forefathers came here with the mindset of economic, as economic migrants. So when they came here in the early 1930s, some of them, they came here as economic migrants. That mindset shifted and trickled down to many of us. And therefore, we have a materialistic outlook on life. And what happens when you have a materialistic outlook on life, it can develop into a gross problem, a spiritual problem. Some people, they start believing that the material realm is the only realm which is real and therefore they deny Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and anything which is spiritual. They deny the metaphysics, that which is beyond the re physical reality. That is because the hearts have become what hardened with being engrossed in the material world. That is one of the effects. So a person who believes he has a smartphone, which is for people who are not so smart, but when he has this smartphone, he believes that he has the world in his hand. He has the world in his hand, and therefore he does not need anything spiritual. It only takes one disaster in the life of that individual to realize that he needs Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. When he does not have this smartphone, when he has no health, when his health is taken away from him. So being engrossed in the material world leads to a materialistic, atheistic mindset. This is why many intellectual arguments can be presented in books. But when you 
engage with many people who have left Islam or who have become atheists or who are atheists, you will realize it's not the intellectual arguments that will be convincing. Many of them are engrossed in a materialistic lifestyle. That is the ones who have left Islam. As for those who remain in Islam, they, be, they become in, involved in drug dealing. Because what is drug dealing today in our inner city areas, this problem that we have? What do youth want? They want quick money. Because they want quick money, they go and invest in the biggest scam of the recent age, which is what? Cryptocurrency. They go and invest in cryptocurrency because every other Pakistani wants quick money and other races as well. And what do they do? They invest in cryptocurrency and they expect gain. And every other guy you ask about cryptocurrency will tell you, I've benefited from cryptocurrency, but you will never see that benefit because they cannot admit the fact they lost 60,000 pound or 30,000 pound. And many of you are smiling because you know that is true. There are people who seven years ago told me that I was wrong to criticize cryptocurrency. But cryptocurrency is the natural evolution of the monetary system also. Meaning going to what digital currency is the evolution from what we had, the paper money, for, uh, the fiat money that we have, from that uh, to the polymer money now that we have, soon to be printed with King Charles III on uh, and every child has been problematic for England. So then the polymer money, that polymer money will develop into what? The, the currency, uh, the digital currency. And the nation state, the natural development from kingdoms to nation states is what? Super states. So you had Euro, the super state. And then maybe even a global structure of a state. These are the natural developments of the, the world that we are witnessing. But our deen, the deen of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, instructs us with our own sharia, which I mentioned, which is contained within al-madhahibul arba'a, the four schools of thought. And what our system of governance, not system, our organism of governance is what is the khilafah, is the return of the khilafah, which is a subject for another time. With regard to artificial intelligence, Artificial intelligence eventually will make many people stupid. Why do I say this? Because Plato mentions, in, and I'm quoting Plato, this is for the Salafis, not because we follow Plato just out of citation interest. We follow the Hadith and the Sunnah. But Plato, he mentions in one of his works that a man, the inventions were mentioned to him and someone mentioned writing. And in the writing, with regard to writing, the invention of writing, he said, if you write, people will become, uh, people will memorize more and they will become more wise. And then the character, the counter character, he states in the play, he states that this is incorrect. People will not memorize because they will rely on books and they will not have real wisdom. What do I mean by uh, not having real wisdom? A person can read all the aqwal, the statements of Imam Abu Hamid al-Ghazali. He can have Ihya ulum al-Din and read it all, but he has no suhbah, no companionship of elders, no because the hadith states as narrated in the Sahih of Ibn Hibban, al-barakatu ma'a'akabirikum, the barakah, the blessings is with your elders. A person reads all of this, but it is not wisdom. He can give citations. 
So this was one of the flaws which was mentioned by a critic with regard to writing, which is a good thing. But every technology has its bad side. And with AI, one of the bad sides that I can sum up today is that it will make people stupid. And where do you realize this more? In my favorite science, which is Ilmu Nahaw. When teaching Nahaw, grammar, what happens? You teach people basic laws of grammar. They memorize, they utilize their minds. And what happens? They develop their faculty of applying the science that they are learning. But imagine they had AI. They had Nahaw in AI. They probably already have. And the person says to Siri or whatever other technology they have, please read out for me, Amil, and Siri then reads out the entire text to them. The intelligence is not developed. And this will happen with many other things. For instance, when we do fact check, so many times in classes, uh, we may discuss historical facts. And in, during that time, I will ask people the dates. They will not be familiar with the dates. When you ask them, when did the Irish potato famine happen? They have no idea. What year did the Bangladesh-Pakistani war occur? Many of the nationalists will know that. But different dates, you ask them, they will be unfamiliar. Why? Because they have not utilized their minds in memorizing, in learning. And in real learning is being able to decipher things, not just information. So there are people today who just go on to Google, take medical information without processing the information. Processing information requires professional skill and training. Professional skill and training happens with the knowledge which is passed down. And I will finish with one example of this, which is that when they say that take your knowledge from ulama and not from books, why do they say this? Because an alim, he may have sat down for 60 years and read multiple books. And then when, he's, when you sit in his class, he will give you the best quotes. He will give you the best quotes. It saves you the, from going down the long route. He will give you the best citations. But not only this, he took this from his teacher. And his teacher would have given him the best citations. And this is a chain going back to Rasulullah And of course there are spiritual benefits like the air that you breathe with your shaykh of learning is the air that he breathed with his shaykh and it goes back to Rasulullah So the response to modernity is found in Al-Madhahibul Arba'a in the four schools. In the four Sunni schools. That the four Sunni schools are developed enough to counter modernity or to develop modernity. To develop modernity. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to enable us to understand what has been said. أقول قولي هذا واستغفر الله لي ولكم وأتوب إليه. Let me tell you something about an amazing thing that was witnessed by an anthropologist. Now, anthropologists, the people, they study different types of people, and they they like to study the aboriginals. The aboriginals are the people who have no connection. To the modern worlds. So a guy went to South America 
and he studied the aboriginals, there are still people today, they've never seen a light bulb. They've never seen electricity. They've never seen, they don't know anything about modern times. They don't may have heard of it, but they live in the depths of the Amazon rainforest. When he took the pictures home and he had them developed and he started to put them for his magazine publication or book or whatever, he noticed something. He said, all the old men have full head of hair. All the men and women, perfect teeth. And he realized the natural form of the human being is healthy. Then only when he did some research, only the crooked teeth began to develop after the refinement of sugar. And people would consume refined sugars, more sugary food than, natu natu uh, than is natural, then they would develop crooked teeth. And alhamdulillah, Allah created for us dentists and people to give us braces and to solve other problems. But he noticed perfect teeth, perfect hair. So the human being by himself is crisp and clean and healthy. But it's by what our own hands have brought as human beings. So this question, what it leaves out is that Allah also created for you your own willpower. My willpower, his willpower, her willpower. Everyone has their own willpower created by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. We do stuff in the world. When a bad thing happens, don't ask what would happen. Oh Allah, what happened? What happened was disobedience of some sort, excess. We went to excess in the foods that we produced. So we got sick. We went to excess in the food that we consumed. So we got sick. And we put sicknesses all in the world through plastics that we developed that mingle with our food, that mingle with our soap, and is living with us and so finite, or so, so fine, you cannot possibly detect a change, but the change is happening. And cancers develop and other things develop. When a bad thing happens, always know human action is behind it. But when good things happened, when the cure is created, do you th who do you thank? Right? So the sign of the sickness in a heart is that when a bad thing happens, I say, oh Allah, what happened? When a good thing happens, we forget about Allah. That's not the questioner. I'm just saying that's a general rule. So bad things happen because human beings have willpower. We have will. There's even studies on animals. There are no animals that are ever born deformed except when those animals live amongst humans and consume the food and live in the environment of humans. Then the animal, their babies can maybe come out with deformities. I would say to the questioner that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala aside from being Ar-Rahim and Ar-Rahman He is what? وَهُوَ الْقَاهِرُ فَوْقَ عِبَادِهِ He is the one who overwhelms his servants as well. He is Al-Khafid, the one who lowers. He is Al-Mudhil, the one who disgraces. He is the one who is what? Al-Mumit, the one who gives death. And he also gives illness. So you cannot just take one attribute of Allah in isolation. You need to take into account all the attributes of Allah. Then he is what? فَعَالٌ لِمَا يُرِيدٌ The doer of what he wills. He does what he wants. 
لا يسألوا عما يفعلوا وهم يسألون they will be, he is not questioned with regard to what he does they will be questioned with regard to what they do yes so you need to take all of these things into account and refer to chapter 4 of my book also inshallah no uh, it's not always the usul is not be, that the philosophy is not that changing an evil begets another evil no that that's not the philosophy the philosophy is that oftentimes the solutions of certain evils when ushered in by evil people is a worse problem than the actual solution the, the, than, than the original evil it's all based upon who's ushering in the solution who is ushering in the solution because of our ummah and our committing of sins and disobedience our hands have been tied from being the ones offering the solutions so a problem arises who offers the solutions forces of evil offer a solution their solution is ten times worse than the problem so it's not a philosophy that if you change the wrong it's going to be worse that's not the case at all and if you look at uh, the the one of the results of an ummah that, ref that persists in laziness on forbidding the wrong is that there will come a day you will want to forbid the wrong and you can't. You have lost your chance. Is that not an apt description of our ummah today? For years and centuries, the ummah has been going astray from the sunnah. Now that we want to change the wrong, we have no power. In general, a regular individual has very little power to change these big global national scale wrongs. So what we have today is to change the wrongs. You have a sphere of influence and a sphere of concern. Our concern is the whole ummah, but the influence is what you can actually fix, what you physically can do today. So whatever it is, if Allah increases it, then it increases it. But at the moment in time, at this moment in time, what we see is that the general, that the, the, who, is the, who is the actor in the name of the Sharia and the name of the Deen at the global level? Who is it? Where is he? He doesn't exist because he needs a population to support him. And those populations aren't there. the guest. Uh, what is the uh, measures to protect our young generation? The number one measure has to be a suhbah, good companionship with other kids struggling and whose families recognize these evils and these ills. Is this one thing when I have to struggle against something by myself, but it's a whole nother feeling when 50 of us believe the same thing. So, if you have suhba, if your kids have good friends who also recognize those evils, everything will be a lot easier. So you can't stop these evils from coming into, into our lives. We can maybe limit them, maybe control the environment a little bit, but nobody can change the fact that one day your kid's going to be on the internet. 
Nobody could change the fact that one day he'll have a cell phone. What you can do is allow the usage of these devices in, in your homes in a way that does not lend to committing sins. Like what? Like you use it in the kitchen in front of everybody. And you get a big screen. Your computer's big. And your laptop is big. And you're sitting right in the, living, in the kitchen. As opposed to a device that you close the door on your room with. A person and the internet. Who was the third? Shaitan. Okay, because the internet's like another person, right? Third one is shaitan. So you can now hand it in at night in your homes when you have youth and children who have to use these devices. Make the screen big. Use it in the general area of the home, right? And then hand it in at 8 p.m. 9 p.m., you bring it in. You bring it into your mom and dad's room. You hand it in. So you, we can have the same devices and same things and same uh, fitan, but you can create a situation where it's easy to be disciplined. Who is the most self-disciplined person? The one who doesn't have to be so self-disciplined. We can create an environment in our homes where the kids have, are going to be with these things, but they, can, they don't have to practice self-discipline. There's a culture in the home. There's a system in the home. The environment helps them not have to discipline themselves. It's hard for a kid to practice self-discipline. So that's environment and habits that you can create, but also the suhba on top of that. With regard to uh, the khilafah, uh, it's an obligation, and it's mentioned in all the books of Kalam, Ilmul Kalam. Just check a standard book like Sharhul Aqaid. They mention it's an obligation to Nasbul Imam, to establish an imam who distributes the zakat and whatnot. There are two extremes with this regard. One is a political frustration of some of the jama'at and ahzab, these groups that you have, that attempt to establish a khilafah, the, the frustrations that they have. So you have mass imprisonments and torture. In the, the Arab regimes are known for this. They imprison people, they torture them because they call for khilafah. And then you have some people saying that it's not an obligation that it will happen when Al-Imam Al-Mahdi radiallahu appears, which is contradicting what, what the books of Kalam state. There is a middle path, and that is what I advocate, which is what mentioning the obligation, calling for the obligation, but at the same time safeguarding the Muslims in terms of political oppression. There is, remember, murder and mass imprisonment, as has occurred in Egypt, in Syria, many other places, is not essential to be on the truth. Some people think it's essential. If your group is not being imprisoned, not being tortured, they think these two things go hand in hand. So you look at the likes of Imam Mutawalli al-Sha'rawi, rahimahullah ta'ala, in Egypt. He lived in tumultuous times, yet he discussed and preached Islam better than any preacher from all those groups. And he was an advocate of Khilafah. Similarly, Al-Imam Muhammad Saeed Ramadan al-Bouti in Syria, he advocated for Khilafah 
To this day, his book on the Khilafah is published in Damascus. Bashar al-Assad has not banned that book, which advocates for Khilafah. So what does that tell you? That it's not always essential to have a clash in order to establish the Khilafah. There's a way of lateral thinking, which I am advocating. A lateral approach, as opposed to the standard Socratic approach. Again, Socrates is not someone we necessarily follow.